Auditions for a new production of William Shakespeare's Macbeth. First performed in 1606. Thanks for coming, everyone. This morning we'll be reading for which number two in the text. Thad, can you take it from there? Sure thing, Ellie. So you folks all have the side from Act 4, Scene 1. Can we start with our first auditioner, please? By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Uh, who's next? By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. <laughs> Thanks. We'll be in touch. By the pricking of my prick, prick. Pricking of my thumbs. Uh, so Next! By the pricking of my thumbs, <laughs> something wicked this way comes. <laughs> uh. <laughs> hey man, it's so fucking cool. Oh, yes, yes. By the pricking of my thumbs. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. <laughs> Bernice, do you have an opinion on that one? Whether you hire her or not, I want her to record my home voicemail message. And uh, who are you? I see you brought in your own bubbling cauldron. And who lit in all those bats? By the pricking of my thumbs. Something wicked this way comes. True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. My name is Thad Helsley, and I am joined by my amazing millennial co-host from everyone's favorite fall and winter vacation destination, the great state of Alaska. Her name, of course, is Ellie. Ellie, how are you? Hi, Thad. I'm good. And I um, am currently getting ready for my winter hibernation here. So just eating a lot of uh, cheesecake and chili and, you know, channeling my inner black bear getting ready for a massive winter nap aha okay so fattening up then yeah <laughs> i i feel like a bear you know like i fatten up for the winter and then hopefully at the end of the winter okay. i come out skinnier maybe maybe that's how that works so just shoving cheesecake and pizza in your mouth all day long yeah yeah i mean not not quite that gross but you know it definitely gives me an excuse <laughs> to like to eat whatever I want and, and indulge around the holidays and then hopefully find a way to freeze it off in the winter. And then, uh, and then, um, I'm at an appropriate weight for summer activities. And we are joined by our amazing artificial intelligence engine, Bernice. <laughs> Bernice, are you okay? Sorry. I was just practicing being afflicted. Like the original Four Girls of Salem in 1692. I think you've got those hell dog sounds nailed, Bernice. Good work. You had me fooled. So, Ellie, we love to trade weather stories because you live in a place that so few of our listeners fully understand. But today, I think I got you beat. 
18 inches of snow fell this past week in my hometown of Gladstone and across the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, what we call the UP, is actually on a longitude similar to Anchorage on a map. And the UP is no stranger to snow, and I always love to tell my stories of trick-or-treating in calf-high snow in the early 70s. Now, that was calf-high snow, Ellie. As a seven-year-old kid, calf-high was probably only two or three inches. But 18 inches, a foot and a half of snow two weeks before Halloween. Wow, that would have been like almost waist-high for me at, at age seven. So I don't know how you'd move for it. So I, I feel for those people, but, but how does that compare to you guys? How will you be spending Halloween holiday, and will you be dressing up to go to parties or stay home and welcome the trick-or-treaters? Well, the good news is I'm not trudging through waist-deep or even calf-deep snow to go trick-or-treating, which is nice. Um, we've only had a few dustings here, and then it was pretty warm the last few weeks. But, I mean, I, we typically get together with friends and carve pumpkins. The interesting fun fact around here is that you don't want to leave your pumpkins outside on your porch like most people do because the moose will come and eat them. So so pumpkins are ah. like candy to moose. So you don't, you don't want to put them outside. Cause... Do you put them in the window? In, is that the Yeah, the yeah. Put, put them in the window and then just... Can you put them find... out just... For the trick-or-treaters just for a couple hours on Halloween night? Yeah, or yeah. Or will the moose jump in there? No, no, they wouldn't jump in there that fast. But, you know, they, they do love okay. they do love pumpkins. And so, you know, you don't want a moose coming up onto your front porch. Well, I guess some people maybe do. But you're not supposed to leave pumpkin, pumpkins outside just because you don't want the moose to be coming up onto your front porch and eating them. So anyway, but that, that has nothing to do with our podcast topic and you did ask am i gonna dress up? <laughs> well that and yeah, yeah um i am gonna dress up i think this year as a witch really yeah. wow well there's a good uh coincidence now will it be sort of this traditional witch with the pointy black hat or more like a salem style witch well i was thinking either witch. a salem style witch or maybe the monty python style witch with a fake nose Right, which would probably be more like a Salem style witch. At least the early ones where they got like the barmaids and the homeless gal and they were the first victims, right? Yeah, to be accused. I was thinking of just getting a like a burlap sack and just putting it on and not washing my hair from now until Halloween and then putting like a carrot on go. my nose. And I think that's it. That's my costume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's, you know, one of the things we were going to talk about are where all these conventions of what a witch is supposed to look like come from. And I think it, I think it must be the Wizard of Oz, you know, because that, that, that uh, green-faced woman with the pointy black hat and riding the broomstick, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but you're not going, you're going with the Monty Python. I'm going with the Monty Python. It seems easier. <laughs> right. No, it's it Easier than it painting my face, you know, and buying all these special I know. hats I, and stuff. Why not just wear a trash bag? Anyways, <laughs> the topic of today's episode is the Witches of Salem, which was suggested by you, Ellie. And obviously it is perfect with Halloween season. But there are so, so many other evil things out there. Vampires and zombies and werewolves and, and homegrown serial killers. How come you chose this particular subject this year? 
I mean, I I think it's just that it's spooky season. It's Halloween, and the the staples of Halloween are you know witches and ghosts and uh, pumpkins. And I was like, well, what scandal can we talk about with one of those? And also, I read an article earlier this year about how there was a an eighth grade class that worked pretty hard in Massachusetts to have the government officially pardon some of the last or the last witch that was alive. And so that was like in the state of Massachusetts. And my initial thought was, wow, those kids don't have enough algebra to learn. But I mean, you know, I think it was a way to stick. <laughs> I, I think it was a way to stick the Salem witch trials back into our uh, news cycle here 329 years later. So, so it's kind of been in the back of my mind ever since then. And the more I look at it, the more I, I'm pretty fascinated by it. Well, it is fascinating. It's funny you say that, that there was a move by the, the Salem Chamber of Commerce to go in and get an, an eighth grade class to uh, file a petition to the legislature. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bernice, can, can you tell us a little bit about Salem, Massachusetts in the late 1600s? My pleasure. Salem is a historic coastal city in Essex County, Massachusetts, located on the north shore of Greater Boston. Continuous settlement by Europeans began in 1626 with English colonists. The vast majority of these migrants were Puritans, a Protestant Christian separatist group. One of their motivations was escaping the influence of the Church of England, which they saw as being not truly reformed and too influenced by old Catholic traditions and the current royal government. Salem would become one of the most significant seaports trading commodities in early American history. Much of the city's cultural identity revolves around the infamous Salem Witch Trials of 1692. Today, Salem, is a thriving tourist destination with many events and attractions themed to the witch trials. Thanks for that, Bernice. So, Ellie, before we get started with the trials themselves, you know we, we, we take little for granted here in the podcast. So, for our listeners, what would a Puritan in 1692 believe a witch to be? And what is the relationship of one of these witches to Satan? So... In the 17th century, there was no separation of church and state, and they were still operating under British law. And so the the Puritans back in 1692, they could accuse someone who they thought was consorting with the devil, that that person would be considered a felon. So if you accuse someone as wit- of witchcraft and therefore dealing with the devil then they're not only committing a crime against religion, but also against their government. And so that's how you ended up having a lot of people be hung by and tried in these courts for something that would have been a religious matter is, you know, just by by doing anything that they think would have been literally dealing with the devil. Okay. And just for non-Christians and atheists and what have you, who is the devil? Well, I guess I don't I don't have a super good answer to that. <clears throat> I mean, okay. would it, I would can it have just Br- be like Bernice not... jump in on that one. Yeah, yeah, I like I not God, you know, like not their level of God, <laughs> <not> their... <laughs> Well, the know. point is that, you know, he seems he seems to be behind all this, right? Everything is a witch is is some sort of an extension like a servant of him doing his his naughty deeds here on earth to mess up God's plans for a perfect for perfect communities like the Puritans aspire to be. Yeah. Yeah. 
So please help us out again, Bernice, if you don't mind. Who is this Satan guy, and why did those Puritans in this tiny little village of Salem fear him so much? Certainly. In the three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, Satan, the devil, or Lucifer is the personification of evil, who rebelled against God in an attempt to become equal to God himself. In these traditions, Satan is depicted as a fallen angel, who was expelled from heaven at the beginning of time, before God created the material world, and is now in constant opposition to God. Okay, so Satan is a bad guy. I got it. But what does this have to do with witches? For millennia, Satan was treated as an aloof and distant metaphor for man's inclination to evil. But beginning with the Protestant Reformation, ministers repositioned Satan as a potential individual threat, with the ability to appear in human or various animal forms and with superhuman powers. He was said to use these powers to seduce vulnerable humans into sin or falsehood. Members of the clergy deployed this myth as a literal bogeyman, in order to convince people into communion with God and the various churches as their only safe harbor. Those who fell under Satan's sway were considered to be witches. And these victims became his personal instruments of evil in the human world. Thanks for that, Bernice. Excerpt from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 1975. Courtesy Trafalgar releasing a subsidiary of Trafalgar Entertainment. We have found the witch! May we burn her? Burn her! Burn her! Who do you know she is a witch? She looks like one! Bring her forward. I'm not a witch, I'm not a witch. But you are just as one. They dressed me up like this. And this isn't my nose, it's a false one. Will? Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat. But she's a witch. Did you dress her up like this? No. 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 Yes. 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 Yeah, a bit. Yeah. A bit. A bit. A bit. She has got a wart. What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. I got better. Murder Whether she is a witch. Are they? Tell us! Tell me, what do you do with witches? And what do you burn apart from witches? More witches! Wood! So, why do witches burn? Because they're made of wood. Good! <laughs> so, how do we tell whether she is made of wood? Build a bridge out of her. Ah, but can you not also make bridges out of stone? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. Uh, uh, does a wood sink in water? No, no. No, it floats. It floats over into the pond. <laughs> what also floats in water? Bread. Apples. Uh, very small rocks. Cider. A great gravy. Cherries. Mud. A churches. Churches. Lead. Lead. A duck. Exactly. So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore... A witch! 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 A
Before we drill into the, the, I mean, we'll get down into the details, but why don't we start with a top line? I mean, everybody in America, at least, and maybe the whole world, has sort of heard of the Salem witches. But I know I, before I, before you suggested we do this, I knew very little about what actually happened in this whole bizarre affair, and I've, I've learned a lot lately. But just as a top line, like just the back of the DVD box or the Netflix description, what the heck are these whole trials about? What was the story there? Yeah, so so top down, Salem, Massachusetts, back in 1692, only had about 1,400 people. And that wasn't exactly the metropolis that it is today, where it has about 43,000 people. And for about 16 months, these trials and executions occurred. Overall, they executed 20 people. 15 of those were women. And 15 more people would end up dying in jail. Over 300 people in Salem were accused of witchcraft out of a population of 1,400, which is a pretty impressive percentage considering over only the span of 16 months that did these trials happen. Accusations ended up spreading spreading throughout the entire Massachusetts Bay Area, including into Boston itself, theoretically a harbor of a degree of sanity. (laughs) And... So many people confessed, you know, we're talking about that 300 out of 1400 people in the town ended up confessing or being accused of witchcraft. A lot of people ended up confessing because people who confessed and basically admitted guilt were mostly released and allowed to just go back and kind of do their daily lives. Whereas people who insisted that they were not guilty of of witchcraft, a lot of those people were executed. And so... That's odd, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it it was. And and so I think a lot of people who are involved in this whole thing, you know, they're like, well, shoot, everybody else is accusing me, so I might as well just admit to it, and then I can go back and live my daily life. And instead of, yeah, I think it was like the like the puritanical version of being canceled. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. I think this was maybe the original cancel culture, you know, like. <laughs> All right, you said something wrong on Twitter, you're done. And then if you're just like, okay, whatever, sure, then then you're just done, right? Like go back and live your live your normal life, people will eventually uncancel you. But if you try to fight it, that's it, you're dead. So, you know, and this all apparently started with four very young girls, their ages ranging from um 9 to 12, I think. And they started behaving extraordinarily strangely and it seemed like uh you know it was beyond any kind of a, a diagnosis it was almost like they were insane or something or mental illness now that we look back what do we think was the the actual physical or psychological cause with what people call the affliction and these girls were important because they were the victims of some kind of witchcraft in the the eyes of the town. And then they were the ones that started pointing to everybody and saying, you're a witch, you're a witch, you're a witch. So they became the fountain of uh, what was to come. Yeah. So I think to understand that you have to go back in 1692 and understand the news and everything that was happening around Salem in that time. So they were having a little bit of a war with the native Americans at that time. And there were like land battles and stuff. A lot of these girls who were having like these afflictions were had seen like members of their family 
be killed by Native Americans. And a lot of them were orphans. So they'd already seen pretty tragic things pretty early on in life. There were also smallpox outbreaks. And there was just kind of this general, like, they call it like a mass hysteria. And everyone in the town was not trusting each other, right? There was just this massive distrust of people amongst all the townspeople. So I think that psychologically, like that kind of town pressure is, you know, not good. And so these girls who had experienced so much trauma from just seeing their their families killed by Native Americans and experiencing the collective stress of a town of 1,400 people who were, you know, nervous about smallpox, they're ner- nervous about Native Americans. Just those stresses of life really led to these, like, physical afflictions and kind of made them go a little outwardly nutso. But the other thing, too, is with some of my research, I found that in Seasons where you had a very, very cold, harsh winter followed by a very wet, damp spring, they would have this fungus grow on the rye wheat that they would use to make rye bread, and that's called ergot. And if you accidentally make bread with that and eat it, it has an LSD effect on the person who eats it. And when historians look back at the weather data from back then. I know they don't have specific weather data, but they have like people's journals and news articles and things from about that time to say like whether or not the winter was harsher or milder than other winters. They're starting to suspect that from a toxicology standpoint that maybe these girls were just tripping, right? On on ergot. You know, maybe the witches were tripping and and it was just bad bread. That reminds me of something in my memory banks from the famous August 1969 Woodstock Music Festival. This announcement was made to a crowd of over 400,000 attendees. Uh, to get back to the, uh, the warning that I've received, you may take it with how many, however many grains of salt you wish, that the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest, but uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one, okay? I believe acid is a colloquial name for LSD or, more properly, lysergic acid diethylamide, which, as Ellie identified, is a synthetic chemical made from a substance found in ergot, which is a fungus that infects the grain rye. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. Now, is that something they would have been aware of at the time, or is this something that scientists, looking back at now knowing where LSD comes from, can make conjectures about? So from what I understand, the ergot looks very similar to how a stalk would look if it were exposed to the sun for a really long amount, like a really large period of time. And so I think it's it's almost indistinguishable. I don't think people would realize it when they were like picking it and, and harvesting it to, to use it for bread. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it could be, it could go unnoticed and they really didn't know, weren't sophisticated enough to know what was going on. They didn't have chemistry or anything like that at the time, at least not, not in Salem. Right. And I think because it wouldn't necessarily affect affect an entire crop at once. Um, Just think of how, you know, like when you leave, you know, something in your fridge and like parts of it will start to mold, but not other parts of it, you know, like if you have a bag of carrots, like one might start to mold and then the others don't. Same with like a, a crop 
of like an entire crop. Maybe only parts of it will have a little bit of mold and then the others won't. And so I think because of that, from what I've read, from my non-scientific brain here, it was impossible to tell whether it was affecting, you know, an entire field of, of wheat. Mm-hmm. Well, and when I accidentally, you know, nibble on a piece of bread that I don't notice has some mold on it, I don't necessarily have a psychotic experience immediately following. <laughs> but right. I just yeah. spit it out and go, ooh. So, yeah. <laughs> but right. okay, okay. So, you know, this is, you know, we don't want this to be a 10 year long podcast. The BBC did something last year on this that was nine episodes long. So you can really drill deep on this. But, you know, there's a number of characters who in this whole thing from first, you know, that starts with these first four girls starting to go nuts. Everybody's like, what's wrong with them? Nobody, no doctor can diagnose things. And then they start immediately jumping to the conclusion that they're the victim of witchcraft which means where did the witchcraft come from? And they start identifying people, but, and then that just, you know, that triggers kind of a wave of growing hysteria across, uh, across the region. But one of the things uh, maybe you've got an opinion on is it's kind of curious because two of the four originally afflicted girls live in the household of the minister of Salem, the minister, Reverend Paris, who was a relatively new to the position and had made himself very quickly unpopular because he, he got into fights with the village in terms of his compensation. And he also was extraordinarily, his ministry was extraordinarily harsh, extraordinarily harsh. But I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's this idea of him living in a house where he has power over certain people, right? One of the first witches was his slave Tichaba. I, you know, I think it's, yeah, I wanted to qu ask you about her too. That and isn't that interesting because they, she's the first person they point to, they blame her. Right. And, you know, I think also she was from Barbados. I think a lot of those Caribbean countries do have regular practices of witchcraft. And so she was pretty quick to admit to practicing witchcraft. And so, you know, I have a few different theories about that. I mean, no one ever knows for sure why she was so quick to admit to it, but I mean, was she was she unaware of how significant that accusation was within the Puritan community? Was did she not understand exactly what they were accusing her of? Or I mean, was she just so miserable in her life that she was like, do anything to get me out of this household? Sure. Yes. I'm a witch, whatever. Like get me out of here. I, I don't know. Well, no, I think you make a good point because according to the, the record, she was born in Barbados. So she was, she was, she wasn't black. She was an indigenous person, you know, of a tribe that is almost extinct now. And I think that was originally when colonization started occurring throughout the Caribbean. You had these people who had lived there for thousands of years and they had their own versions of religion, apparently. We would we would call it or at least the Christians would have called it pagan religions, but religions nonetheless and things that to her would seem like religious rituals and, and what have you to a Puritan might appear to be witchcraft, you know, using, pouring things into a bowl and mixing them up and using that. I mean, how different is that than, you know, a person going up and eating a tiny little cracker and calling it the the body of Christ? I don't know. 
I don't know. <laughs> I was raised a right. Catholic, but it was just like, it's just like, there's a lot of crazy shit going on. <laughs> Everybody has their their own religious practices, right? Everybody has their own routines. Everybody has their own rituals. And, you know, to say that one is witchcraft and one isn't is, it seems, seems like a very puritanical thing to do. (laughs) But I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because I mean, she had been with this family. I mean, apparently, uh, Reverend Paris, before he was a reverend, before he was a minister, he was trying to be a farmer, a plantation owner, and he was not very good at it, which is why he ended up leaving his, or got kicked out of his farm in Barbados. But they brought Tichuba and her husband with them to this new job. And so he had been with this family. I mean, he'd known these girls. She, I mean, she was like their, their nanny, you know, their maid. I mean, so the fact that they fingered her right off the bat is kind of weird. But then also, like you say, the fact that she so easily confessed and apparently now you said some things we don't know about. These actual, um, they weren't trials, they were hearings, I guess, but there was a stenographer. So we have word for word, question, answer, question, answer with her and a lot of the other people. Maybe not what was going on in the village behind the scenes, but in these official proceedings, we do have uh, transcripts of what was said. And she does, she does go nuts, doesn't she? I mean, she starts describing stuff. I mean, all they did was uh, accuse her of being a witch, and she went from denying it to then all of a sudden making these like really really inventive descriptions of what satan looked like and i think she she started the flying broom thing she said she she flew on a broom so you know she's a maid so what wouldn't that be a good thing <laughs> fly on a broom i would have said i would have come up with a dragon or a giant eagle or something no how about a broom <laughs> Hey, what a what a great way to bring witchcraft to the matches, or to, I'm sorry, to the masses, right? Like, you know, she, <laughs> you know, everybody has a broom, so everybody can everybody can be a witch if you have a broom, right? I mean, right. she's she's the OG. Right. I, I like that. Right. <laughs> well, and the other thing, uh, you know, as as all these different people are accused, I mean, there was in that same Tichuba confessed. And uh, what, what's what's amazing about her, because she confessed, she did rot in jail for almost a year. She never got executed, though. So the other two people that were pointed out by the girls, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, didn't confess, and they ended up getting executed. Yeah, yeah. And, and that just goes back to that, you know, what I, what I mentioned earlier is that right. so many people who just, once the ball started rolling, people realized that if you just confess then you're good, right? Like you're going to live and you can probably go back to at some point a semi-normal life. I mean, you're, you're going to have a scarred family name, but at least you're not going to be hung, right? So, Right. And in Tichuba's case, not only was she not executed, but she was released from prison. And uh, at least at the tradition of the time when you were put in jail, you were charged room and board for being in jail. Now, where would a girl who is an enslaved person have enough money to pay for a year in jail? Somebody paid her bond and she was released. She was never, at least in recorded history, heard from again in Salem, but uh, she got the heck out of there. But she came off with a better, even though she was the first one that kind of started this hysteria, and sort of and and may have even um 
codified it in a way by making up all this really incredible stuff. She's obviously, she should have been a writer or a screenwriter or something, but <laughs> yeah. she, she gets off scot-free. She gets off scot-free. I know. Well, and then we have Ann Putnam. Yeah. Ann Putnam. Yeah. Tell us about her because she, she was responsible for like accusing 62 people. Oh my God. Yeah, man. She was just pointing all the fingers. And so she she was born in Salem Village in uh, 1679. So she would have been about 13 at the time. And she was friends with some of the girls who claimed to be afflicted by witchcraft. And so in March of 1692, she proclaimed to be afflicted herself along with um elizabeth hubbard mary walcott mercy lewis abigail williams and mary warren and um ann putnam is responsible for the accusations yeah of 62 people and she that resulted in the executions of 20 people and then uh several other people died right. in prison in right. 1706 she publicly apologized for the part she had played and she was the only accuser to do so she said i desire to be humbled before god for that sad and humbling providence that befell my father's family in the year about 92 that i then being in my childhood should by such a providence of God be made an instrument for the accusing of several people for grievous crimes whereby their lives was taken away from them whom now I have just grounds and good reason to believe they were innocent persons and that I was a great delusion of Satan that deceived me in that sad time whereby I justly fear I have been instrumental with others though ignorantly and unwittingly to bring upon myself and this land the guilt of innocent blood. Though what was said or done by me against any person, I can truly and uprightly say before God and man, I did it not out of any anger or malice or ill will to any person, for I had no such thing against one of them, but what I did was ignorantly being deluded by Satan. Okay. Well, I was just going to say that, so... One of the weird things is where, that that make this look maybe not so crazy as it first appears with all these accusations is the fact that Anne Putnam is the daughter of John Putnam. And there were these two powerful families in the area, the Putnams and the Proctors. And their families went back to the original settlers in the Massachusetts Bay Area. Two very powerful families had a lot of farmland and shipping interests and what have you, and they were always fighting with each other, fighting for control of the city council, suing one another. They were very uh, litigious, suing one another for land-type issues and livestock, et cetera, et cetera. And the Putnams in particular were a very, very vengeful group, and it just seems so strange that so many of the people that Ann Putnam happened to finger were related to or directly the Proctor family. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, I think that that's actually that, that little, that little bit of like small town drama, right. Talking about how it's right. a town of only 1400 people. I mean, right. that, that is so underreported, I think in all of the Salem witch trial history. I mean, just maybe it's just like the like the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? I mean, how like it definitely was. It definitely was. They were they were always fighting. 
and it's just yeah it's just one of those things small town drama and then I guess you know all of a sudden he's like wow what if my little 12 year old girl suddenly started fingering people and I got rid of all my enemies in one fell swoop (laughs) (laughs) you I'm sorry you you use you use that term a lot and I think a lot of people are going to chuckle a lot throughout the uh, podcast what's that fingered getting fingered (laughs) Uh, is that is that not a cool word anymore? It, it's a it's like a sexual term. Okay, hmm. <laughs> I guess I didn't know that. I thought fingered as in pointing a finger. Right. That's what that's where I understand it to come from. I wasn't thinking of heavy petting. So <laughs> if that's what you're equating I'm, I'm it saying, with, I'm saying like I like a, a time or two. But then the the more times you use it, I think the more more times people immature people like me might start to chuckle. <laughs> okay. Well, how about if I say it's interesting that these teens and preteens leveled their accusations at individuals that were middle-aged and or or outright old and and the vast majority were women. Now, 10% were men, that's true, but still 90% women? Yeah. And and you know, it's one of those those arguments, you know, women, especially back in that day, that a lot of these women were not from a high socioeconomic status. You know, they were they were very underprivileged. Women at that point did not have really a means to create income for themselves or have a job, right? I mean, if you got married, it was because it was financially beneficial. And so I think they're an easy target. Women were an easy target back then. Mm-hmm. The easier easier targets than they are now. Yeah. Well, they were already second rate or third rate citizens to begin with. They couldn't vote. They, like you said, they had no political power. They couldn't even hold a job. Really, they could only be a wife or a teacher or a nurse. Really, there was like three things that they could do. So they were much easier. How could they even defend themselves? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and um, you have this note here, you know, you said, how come not even one boy was afflicted? Right. Okay. I got to say, I, just I was in a line for something the other day and there were like these two little five-year-old boys. I think boys just spaz out more than girls and it's just more acceptable for them to do so. Like, You're saying it's just, taken for granted the, that, that, so that runaway testosterone, they, they're just everybody ignores it because that's just the way boys are. Boys will just, be boys. Yes, they have so much energy that they just all of a sudden just like get up and run around and climb a tree and kill a raccoon and like nobody blinks. Right. Like that's just that's just what boys do. And I, you know, I think maybe with the girls, it was a little bit like it's weird behavior is noted a little more because girls are supposed to be calmer and more polite and more well behaved. That's right. Just my my observation. Right, right. Well, let's get into another one of these characters because that kind of funnels into that. So the guy in charge of these witch trials was the lieutenant governor of the entire Plymouth Bay area province, whatever, called William Stoughton. And he was a very, very strict, devout, conservative, devout, quote unquote, devout Puritan. And he's, if it was not for his intolerance and severity 
this would not have gotten so out of control, but he was running. There was more than one person on the, there were no juries per se. There were like three or four people and he was the main guy. So he's like the, he's like the chief justice and he's the one making the eventual rulings on whether somebody is guilty or innocent and then what their sentence would be. And so one of the things that he did, going back to what we were just talking about, was, first of all, you've got to ask yourself, <laughs> you're going to use, the, your your sole evidence is going to be the word of a nine-year-old girl? First of all, we, we just agreed that girls were powerless in this society, and now all of a sudden, they're... Uh, the ravings of a girl on LSD become evidence in a capital crime. Okay, that's one thing. Number two is that part of the evidence that was allowed was called something called spectral evidence. In other words, no actual tangible anything, you know, no piece of paper, no eyewitness testimony. It was like just somebody saying, I saw a ghost and the ghost did this. And that was allowed as evidence in a trial, right. a capital crime trial. Right. Which is bananas for us to think about today. Right. But I don't, you know, or is it, or is it <sighs> when we think about the, like the recent election and you're like, come on, there's no way. Yeah, there's a way. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Well, oh, and talk about current election season. Yeah. Everybody asking like, right. You know, Oh, did, do you believe that Joe Biden is the president? It's like, why are we even asking candidates this? Yeah, is that like the, you're right. Is it spectral evidence? You know, this, like, are, are we just coming back around full circle to allowing like completely ridiculous evidence to be put into certain accusations? Well, that's the thing. It's like, it does strike me as, boy, this sounds freaking familiar to me. Like, I can say whatever I want and it's taken as fact. Just because right. I said it, because I pulled it out of my fanny and said it. Well, and and my favorite thing, too, is not only did the courts allow spectral evidence, but in one of those documentaries on the Smithsonian Channel, they were saying how they would put the the witches in, or, you know, the those who they accused of witchcraft, they would put them in iron shackles because their belief was that right. iron would block the witchcraft from happening. You know, it's like, okay. All right, sure. Like, because <laughs> that's gonna work <laughs> if if they actually are committing doing witchcraft. Like, sure, an iron shackle is gonna the iron itself is going to protect them. You know, everyone around them from like the the devil's work. You know, like no, I'm pretty sure it's just because they're in shackles and they're not gonna be doing anything. But it's yeah, it's like where's the logic on either side? Well. No, yeah. I mean, that's an excellent point because, you know, first of all, you're accusing these people of having all of these supernatural occult powers. You know, the ability to fly through the air on a broom, the ability to cast these spells on and, and, and affect people's behavior, to kill their livestock, to do all these different things, to appear as a ghost and walk through walls. And But guess what? Suddenly, if I throw you in prison... All of a sudden, that stuff goes out the way. You can't do right. a damn thing except <laughs> poop in your own pants. So, <laughs> because of the special properties of the iron shackles, not because. Oh, okay. You know, the special properties of the iron. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, I I do think. Uh, I don't know. I think the I think uh, the lieutenant governor was was eating a little of that LSD, man. I maybe they all were. Some were just eating more. <laughs> yeah. 
every everyone was tripping. And that is actually one of the reasons why they suspect that the trials just ended so abruptly is not just because the governor of Massachusetts kind of took a look at it and was like, okay, you guys are all going a little nutso here. Um, like this all needs to stop. But also like all of these afflictions stopped, you know, and maybe it was just that they'd consumed all of the, all of the uh, contaminated rye. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, there was, they, people stopped confessing and maybe it was because they realized uh, there wasn't a plea bargain available, but all of a sudden people did start confessing. And like you said, the royal governor, William Phipps, did step in. I mean, there were enough people in Boston where there were some, as you, what did you say before, some bastion of sanity there. Yeah. You know, p- people that were not Puritans who were just business people and citizens are like, what is going on out there? We're the laughing stock of the English colonies get out there and shut this shit down, man, which they did. And they pardoned everybody, right? Yeah. That was still alive. Yeah. So the reality of the whole situation, why, why the girls were afflicted in the first place, why they were going a little nuts and, and then why people were, especially why Tichaba really got the ball rolling on confessing to the accusations. And then also, why everything just kind of abruptly came to a stop. I mean, we we have a lot of clues, but I think there's no specific set evidence on here. Here's why exactly why everything happened. I mean, it was only like what within the last 20 years that they even found the exact spot where they were doing the hangings. Right, right. They found. Yeah, there was a there was a a whole raft of records that were discovered in the 1990s, I think like that. And a lot of these transcripts of the trials and the, and the hearings and things like, things like that. But it's weird that even just years after all of this occurs, the government sort of, I mean, they gave reparations to people that had been put in jail. There was of course the uh, confession by Ann Putman and she, by the way, she died at only the age of 37. So there's a little God's judgment in that, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> never married. So I don't know. It's like, I'd be afraid to marry her for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, man. She's going to get you'll me leave, hung. <laughs> you leave one dish on the counter with that one and you're gone. Oh, yeah. That's like, <laughs> don't put your dirty socks on my coffee table. <laughs> Oh, dear. Moving to the the modern world. When you look at modern today, Salem, there's tons of stuff online. There's videos and things like that. The, the, town, the modern town of Salem has embraced this notoriety, this reputation, and they've turned it into tourist mega dollars. So they're not burying this at all you know they've got there's, there's a picture that we'll put on our, our Twitter and Facebook feeds their water tower is a picture of a witch that looks very much like the wicked witch from the Wizard of Oz the name of their town is Witch City it's on their sign the police have a witch on their badges the high school sports teams are called the Salem witches so <laughs> they're embracing this even though it has a it's a very negative genocidal thing that that we're here we're talking about it on Halloween because it's so scary and yet they're just having a great time with it. 
I mean, I'm the kind of person who likes to find a lot of humor in things. And personally, I think it's been 330 years. I think maybe we're allowed to laugh at it. Like, okay. I think the wounds have healed. It's not like we're actually committing people of witchcraft today. You know, we're not like pulling out all the nine-year-old girls from the town of Salem who act a little weird. We're not asking them, you know, what what's the reason for their... Uh, weird behavior so so i guess i i personally feel like it's a great thing for the town of salem to embrace well it's obviously a extraordinary economic boom because there's not a whole lot else going on in the town of salem from an industrial standpoint but i guess you're right there's there is that great old saying comedy equals tragedy plus time so right. uh, you know if, if enough time passes you can make bad jokes like or other than that how did you like to to play mrs lincoln yeah well and the entire holiday of halloween and similar ones like the day of the dead in mexico and things like that has got a, a bizarre ironically evil edge to it right we're encouraging little kids to dress up like demons and devils and you're gonna be a witch and gonna be a witch <laughs> and run around and, and for a day we're gonna we're going to celebrate supernatural violence and, and horror and everything else. So we're just weird people, I guess. I like it. Well, you know, I think the reality is we all just need an excuse to eat a cheesecake. <laughs> and alternate cheesecake and pizza. Alternate cheesecake and pizza. But you know what I'm there going to do? Go. I'm going to go look for a cheesecake pizza recipe right now. Oh, wow. Okay. That'll be good. So, Ellie, what else do we have to say? Oh, no, I was going to – here's the one last question I did have for you. Is like, so why do we think – and I guess it follows from what we are talking about. Why do we think 330 years later that this particular event, with all the, the incidents of, of you know, execution and murder and war and disease and death – that we celebrate this one in particular, 330 years later, and it has become a tourist industry. I mean, I, like I was saying earlier, I think it's mostly just because at this point in history, with enough time that's passed, it's become pretty benign. You know, we look back and we just think, okay, people were out of control back then in this small little Salem town of 1,400 people. So I think, you know, we just can look, look back at it and we're like oh well that that happened that you know it's it's not something that's going to like continue to spread it's just an interesting little bubble of events that happened we continue to include witches as a staple of halloween and halloween happens every year so i think it's just going to continue to happen every year you know every everybody's just going to be fascinated by it well we're going to return the hangman's news to its own little hook for this episode Maybe there's a little air glow around here somewhere that I can get a hold of. I want to thank my co-hosts, Ellie and Bernice, for their usual great work. And I want to wish everybody a happy Halloween. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform. And we'd love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you. You can reach us online at scandalsheetpod.com, Facebook, or Twitter. Or just send us an email to contact 
at scandalsheetpod.com. We'll see you next time on Scandal Sheets. Copyright 2022. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.